Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hello and welcome to Great Women in Compliance, sponsored by Corporate Compliance Insights. I am Hema Lomax and I'm thrilled today to start my very own podcast with Renee Rajkumar. Renee is my first guest and I'm so happy to have her here. Um, Renee and I actually go a long way back, back to when I used to teach baby barristers at the Intercourt School of Law. I had a side gig as a volunteer compliance person, and Renee was my first mentor in compliance, so I'm really thrilled to introduce her. Uh, Renee currently is a manager um, of risk and compliance for estates at the University of the Arts London. She's also the founder and owner of Portal Coaching Limited, where she's a life coach, and she supports her daughter's uh, company, Sunshine Smiles. So she'll tell us a little bit more about that. But let me, without further ado, introduce Renee and ask her to introduce herself. Hi, Renee. Hello, Emma. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so happy you could join us. Tell us a bit about, a bit about yourself, Renee. Well, Emma, um, I live in the UK. Uh, and as, as you know, we came here, I came here with my husband. He wanted to finish up his degree in structural engineering and, and we came here. At that point um, in my life, I was at a crossroads in terms of careers and I had just gotten into health and safety. And with the thought of going to a foreign country for him to finish his degree, we thought about Canada, we thought about the UK. And because the UK system was more aligned to the Trinidad way of education. We came, to, we came to London. And the rest is history, really. I thought London might be a good place to come with, with regards to health and safety because it has been an established system for so many years. You know, the Health and Safety at Work Act has been around since 1974. And Trinidad was in that place where they were just formulating their OSH Act, their OSHA Act. And, you know, there was no real regulation and stuff around. So they the enforcement of it was never going to come into play anytime soon. And I thought, whilst he's doing his degree, I guess I could come here and get some experience. So that's how I got into the first bit of compliance, health and safety compliance. But now my role is it's much wider. It's compliance across the piece. So it's not just health and safety. You know, it's, it's GDPR, which is, you know, data protection and everything to do with compliance. Anything that has a piece of legislation where the institute and uh, our estates department need to comply. This is where I get involved. So that's that's me. And as you mentioned, you know, I have my life coaching business on the side, Portal Coaching Limited, which I utterly enjoy. And I also include life coaching into my role. So it's a very unique combination of skills that I have and my approach, I would say. So I, I, I make compliance enjoyable for myself. <laughs> oh, I love that, Renee. And anyone that knows me will not be surprised that I brought a, a life coach who does compliance because coaching for compliance is one of the most exciting concepts for me. But we'll get to that later and we'll get to some of your businesses. First, I wanted just to make a comment. You and I are very sociable people. We're people people. Yet we've chosen a career where some people try to tend to run the other way. Like compliance can be a dirty word. And why is it you and I ended up in a profession where we're, we're working with people that might not want to see us coming? Tell us about that. <laughs> you know, Emma, when I was younger, I think my, my ambition was always to help people. So I thought about being a psychiatrist, a psychologist. Then I got into health and safety, I did a bit of an environmental management. For me, I think the reason why I ended up in compliance was because I just wanted to make sure that people were okay. And I, I had this really, really strong like conviction that when people are coming to work, they should not be harmed because it is just, it's just wrong that you would be coming to work to earn an honest living and a company by neglect or you know just ignorance would cause you to be exposed to harm. So... It feels like compliance has brought everything together for me. And whilst people may run the other way, you know, we'll talk about this, but I think it's about how you approach compliance that makes it easier for people to engage and wanting to engage because it's a whole culture piece, isn't it? It's, it's about making people feel like they actually want to do what they're supposed to do as opposed 
they've been imposed or them feeling forced to do it. No, I think that's so right. And in, in terms of compliance leadership, what would you recommend to those of us that are trying to influence people to do the right thing and keep people out of harm's way? I My approach is always to fully understand what people need to do and what they have to do. And to ensure that whatever we're asking them to do in practical terms, it would actually make sense. Now, a big thing that we're facing, I think, in compliance is really about making sure that we have the right procedures, policies in place. Yeah. But when it comes to implementing those policies and procedures, that they actually work and it does, it's not an hin a hindrance and it doesn't um, cause people ill feeling by them having to comply. So getting to know what people need to do in order to comply with whatever policies and procedures you put in place. It really has to work the other way around. Whilst you'll be working to, to probably standards and to law, it has to be practical. And with that, you have to make sure that people have the resources. So there's time, there's systems. You know, we have big organizations sometimes wanting people to do things, you know, in this sort of perfect way to be compliant, but they actually don't have the time to do it. And it means that they would not be doing their jobs that you'll be calling them up and, you know, roughing them up for not doing their jobs, <laughs> but they just don't have the time. And then there's the systems part of it. So right now, um, I am working really, really hard to make sure as an estate department that we have the right systems to manage our information. You know, we have building drawings, we have um, health and safety files, we have all sorts of different things that we're hosting as though, you know, it is a small company. So we need to make sure that our systems match what we require our compliance to be able to prove. So for me, a big thing is having information in a way where you could easily quickly prove compliance so if i if i walk into an area and i am auditing my first test is how easily can i get the information i'm looking for yeah. if it is not readily available and you know this time in health and safety things must be reproducible you have to be able to quickly um, show evidence of compliance if I can't find the information and I have to go to three different sources and it's somewhere where I don't have access to, I'm almost stopping the audit. First test, where's your information? Yeah. So this is some of the things that we really need to make sure that we have the right policies, procedures, systems, resources, and that people are all trained up, but that they were involved in putting these things together because mm -hmm. if it's not going to suit them, they're not going to use it. The worst thing for compliance is people feeling as though things are being put on them and they had no say. So true, Renee. I always think we need to think about co-creation of these resources with the with the people we're helping and serving. Um, and how do you achieve that? How do you get the viewpoints and the creativity of the people that you're serving into your compliance program? I take time to get to know individuals mm -hmm. now. Yeah. You might say, you know, big organizations, you're not going to have the time to meet people and talk to people and stuff. But you do. You Everything that is important to you, you make time for. So my thing is being able to sit and speak to people, ask them various questions, understand where people's minds are. And, you know, I guess having that coaching skill too is, is really key for me. Because creating that trust between people who you know you're going to have to audit at some point or help with procedures and stuff, creating that trust where they would actually say something to you that they may not say to somebody else. So when you come up with a solution, your solution is insightful. Not only is it informed, it is insightful because you have all of this sort of background information yes. that you could pull into your solution. So getting to know people is quite in, in, important, I think. And taking the time to, to build those relationships. And as I said, understand what is what is going on you know observing is also very very important mm -hmm. so a lot of times sometimes I stop I stop audits if I see a theme developing it means then we have a systemic problem and we need to go back to policies procedures and resources nice yeah? why would I continue doing an audit to keep finding faults and then just bring out faults 
that would make people where you know feel as though you know they, they're not doing good enough when i could say all right i recognize that we have no problem here what will make this better go back create a solution implement it and then when we have something that we feel is working we come back and we audit so then the audit for me is then fine-tuning instead of criticizing and fine using that exercise as a fault finding because you know how people feel about audits hammer the minute they hear an audit you, they think you're coming in to scrutinize them and criticize them and it gets their back up now that has a lot to do with the approach and your personality also yes um because i think long ago you know old school auditors would typically kind of be male and they had this kind of serious look. So it's almost like, you know, accountants sometimes, but this serious look and they were fairly intimidating. And I think they, they liked coming in as though they were the authority and created that aura around themselves that would actually make people a bit nervous. Now, I think the opposite is a better approach. People know you're, you're serious because compliance is serious, but you're actually there to be part of a solution. Now that sounds kind of cliche, but how you go about that solution is very different. You know, that solution has to be something that is based on really, really good observation. Another thing that I think is really critical too, like with auditors, because I've had auditors, external auditors come in and they don't know the topic that they're auditing. Mm -hmm. And of course, with audit, for me, it's about credibility. So I have to be a credible source of information and I have to know the topic that I'm auditing. I have no respect for anybody coming in to audit, audit me. You're coming to audit construction or health and safety and you don't actually know anything about health and safety. Now, it's fine. You could say, well, you know, you have the principles or you know what they're complying to in terms of the legislation and stuff. But what does that mean when you come to audit? What are the things that you're looking for? So I laugh sometimes because... People come into audit stuff, and for me, the audit is light. The findings are light, and I'm thinking, if you dug a bit deeper, if you knew, you would be able to see different things. And you might say, well, it's based on the scope, but it's not that. It's about you being informed as an auditor also. And there, you know, we go back to that understanding. So I think these are some of the main things for me with compliance. So much good stuff there. And I want to unpack some of that because I'm picking up a few themes as well as you talk. Um, you know, you said solution based. It sounds like you focus on the human involved in the in the equation. Not so much you talked about all the documentation, the audits, the files that you are asked to maintain, but really those mean nothing unless you're out there engaging with the people. So I really like that. I, I like to say that 20% of my work might be all that documentation, those processes and procedures, but the other 80 is the trust building that you referenced. So let's talk a bit about that. Um Making risk relevant for the, these humans that you serve, how do you do that? And what you, what steps are you taking to make sure that they you do have that credibility with them? Not just being an expert in health and safety, but being an expert in their daily jobs. How do you do that? Getting involved. You know, you go, you go to meetings and you understand what's going on. And having those informal conversations, again, you know, so the, the risk, you become relevant. I always say to people, what, whatever we're doing, and especially in these days where AI is, it seems to be taking over, we human beings need to add value. So our added intelligence, so we are AI in a different way. We're supposed to add intelligence. Exactly. It's supposed to be that where I am, if I am not involved, if I am not there, you could feel the difference. Yeah. So in terms of, in terms of understanding risk and making risk relevant, when you work with people and you go to their meetings and you have different conversations, you understand the risk and not just by what they say, but what they're not saying, not just by what is happening in terms of incidents and accidents and near misses and all that stuff and breaches, but by the absence of, of those. And so it's, it's being able to, I think is swing is this kind of windshield wiper um, motion where you have to kind of understand it, and we, we, you pull it back. You, you, there's, a, there's a problem. You understand what the problem is. You kind of go to the middle. You feel out what you need to be doing, and then you, you form a solution, but with people involved. So this relevance of, of risk is also understanding the, the company. And then there's risk appetite, too. You know that. Some companies, they're happy to pay fines. In the older days, the old companies were quite happy to um, 
to breach regulations because they're so wealthy and just pay the fine. They worked it out. They'll still be in the profits. So risk relevance, I also think, has to do with the, the vision and the ethos of, of a company um, and just pulling all of those things into place. So as, as a compliance person, I really see myself as the nucleus. Now, that might be something that's why I think I'm so important, but just like the nucleus of everything, you're quite, you're in the middle and you're just, you're turning around, you're looking at stuff, you're pulling in information, you're pushing information out. And it's not just like being a, a, a catalyst. You're supposed to be a, a reviving source in your, in, your, in your department or in your organization to keep people out of harm's way because that's why, we, well, that's why we, we're here, Emma. You know, this is this is not about um, an organization surviving. This is about people surviving to maintain your organization. This is this is bigger. And we spoke about this. I think for me, you always have to think about what's the highest intent of what you're doing. And I am doing this so that people could have healthy, happy lives. And that I can have a healthy, happy life so that I will see my grandchildren and I will create legacy. So what I do is bigger than my role. The purpose and intent for that is bigger. And so organizations need to have bigger intents than just making money. It has to be that they're doing this because they want to contribute. There's a, there's a compliance then becomes a, a, a conscience. That's your conscience. That's your organization's conscience. And not just like, okay, we'll just do the minimum to be seen to be doing the right thing. You see, none of these, none of this could be fickle and shallow or else it will fall apart. People will see through it and they would start to not just not take it seriously. When things have substance, you find that people feel that substance and that they engage for that. You know, it's a source of love. Compliance is a source of love, as I see it. I mean, so. The audience can't see the smile on my face, but yes, wow, amen. You've said so many things there that resonate with me. Um, and, and as you said, you're, you're coming at it from a values-based, mission-based, purpose-based position, um, which then makes probably, even though it's hard work what you're describing, what you're doing effortless because you're focusing on the people and the reasons that you're, you're a compliance officer. Now, I love that. Now, look, you've coined a phrase, added intelligence there, the new AI, <laughs> which I love. You've heard it here first. Um, <laughs> Let me ask you, I mean, again, I've got so much to ask you, but let me just turn you here to the added intelligence of being a life coach then, because it's no surprise to me personally, because I feel like you've always been my life coach. Um, we spent many an hour sitting on your couch with blankets with a cup of tea, talking about the world and putting it to rights. So no surprise to me that you formalized your um, your talent there into, a, into your portal coaching limited business. But talk to me about how the coaching skill brings added intelligence to your role as a compliance officer. The emotional intelligence and the ability to listen mm -hmm. and ask the right questions. So when, when I go into a situation, I am not going thinking I know what is going on. I will ask a question that you could speak on and then I will start drilling down. Yeah. So adding that, asking those right questions. I had a, I had a, a client, now friend, sent me a message the other day and he, he, he said to me, he goes, do you think I'm lazy? And hmm. I messaged him back. I said, okay, where's this coming from? So I called him. I said, where's this coming from? And he goes, you know, I'm out of a, a, a job for so long and stuff. I'm just, I'm just wondering. I said, okay, so let's ask a better question. Is there anything more that you could do that you are not doing? Nice. And he, and he goes, yeah. Actually, yeah. I said, okay, so what are those things? And he says, I, I could do this, blah, blah. I said, so when are you going to do those things? And he said, I'm going to do these things by this day. I said, okay, so this is my point to you. You ask a better question, you get a better answer. The question you posed to me, which do you think I'm lazy, automatically tells me that you're thinking about yourself in a negative way. And so in order to get to where you need to be, which is in the solution, you're going to have to get over your feelings of feeling guilty that you might be lazy and then think about doing something better. Ask a better question. Yeah. And so the added intelligence goes right back to that. 
being able to do those things and the life coaching skills because I have you know NLP neurolinguistic programming I could I, I know the language to use I know how to I know how to listen I know how to drill I know how to pick up on the undertones so I use that um that insight and that intelligence and and those skills to make sure that people know that I understand what they're saying. I'm connecting with them and I'm connecting with the reasons why they may be responding to things a certain way, mm-hmm. which they might, you might end up realizing, listen, you know, it's not necessarily about work here. They're going through stuff at home. And so you might go into that for a little bit and then you bring it back and you say, okay, so how, how can we make this easier here then? You know, we know what we're dealing with at work. And at, at home, how could we make it? And so we go through that. But also, Emma, one of the things that I've convinced my boss to, to do, and he was so good, this is my old boss, um, was to allow me to do offer a one day of live coaching a month to my estate's colleagues. And what? it has worked brilliantly. Because as you know, you know, there's there's no real divide between work and, and life. You know, if you have something going on in your personal life, it's going to affect you at work and vice versa. So I have been able to life coach my colleagues and you talk about all different things, you know, it's it's confidential. You talk about all different things, but through those sessions I've been able to help them with stuff that's, you know, affecting them at work or their response to things at work and to help them to improve mm-hmm. at work. So it's very unique and and you may know this or not know this but I also call come from a quality background yes so my I apply all of my theories my my first principles as my husband will call it as he's in engineering all of my basic theories so things like in quality assurance get it right the first time so I spend a lot of time gathering information so that when I execute I'm doing the writing with with less rework. So I apply that to life. I apply risk assessment principles to life and coaching and everything that I do. What is the risk assessment principles? We're trying to avoid incidents, foreseeable risk. What is the foreseeable risk if we don't have people happy? They're probably not going to be compliant, right? Well, if you're thinking... If people are not compliant, then it's not going to be happy. Well, no, no, no. We need to make sure that people are in the right mindset to be compliant. So for me, stress management is a big part of what I do. If I sit in the office and I hear that people are mumbling about stuff or something is not working, I will probe. And if I, so what's going on here? Why is that not working? And then I will take that information. I'll go and have conversations with different people and say, listen, we have a bit of an issue in this department. We People are not feeling happy for X, Y, Z. This process is not working. And I will do that in the background sometimes without them knowing. <laughs> so it's quite... And this, is why, <laughs> and this is why also I know, you know, remote working is convenient for most of us, but there's nothing like going in the office and being around where the work is taking place, if it's that kind of work. Because the things that you pick up on and the body languages and the sigh, you're not going to, nobody's going to call you on teams to sigh. <laughs> right, that's right. So, right, I mean, the thing is, I think you're talking about the conditions where, you know, well, the conditions we create for people to op- operate in and how are they going to be thinking about compliance or safety if they're they're so consumed with that kind of stress or they can't see each other, they can't talk to each other. I, I, I hear you 100%. Um, the other thing I, I think you've touched on here is, you're focusing on what they are doing as opposed to what you want to be talking about. So you, it sounds like you're very curious and interested in what's impacting them, whether it's their stress or their mental state, their mental wellness, or the activities that they're involved in. It sounds like your risk assessment, let's say, is objective-based. It sounds like you're focusing on their activities. A lot of compliance programs, I think, fall short because we've got our own checklist of what we want to talk about. Um, let's just talk about health and safety. It's no use talking to people about risks that feel remote to them. Um, but once you learn about what they're doing and what they're involved in, the conditions in which they're operating, it becomes more relevant. So talk to me a little bit about that. How do you focus on um, what the employees are doing more than what we might have in our audit checklist? Again, you know, as I said, just being in, involved. But I think with with everything, one of the things that we need to we need to understand is that organizations are evolving. And employees are having to adapt and adopt 
And sometimes, you know, we, we have to fight change. We have to create an environment where change is acceptable, but you always have sort of a, a fallout of that. So it's sort of making sure that the employees know that you care, not just in a superficial way. And so that the focus is on the employee. If your focus is on the employee, I think it was um, Richard um, Branson, is his name? It's a Richard, Virgin guy. It's he, he was saying, you know, if you focus on the employee, they will focus on the customer. Yes. So, and that is, you know, it's, it's, it sounds very, very simple, but it's not the old school way of thinking. The old school way of thinking is, okay, so we beat the, sort of like modern, like slavery, we beat the employees onto a pulp, make them scared, and then maybe they would comply. Whereas I, I think in terms of getting involved in the, with the employee is making sure that you even have forum, fora and forum for people to, to speak about stuff. But also creating that that culture where you're not just bringing a problem to me. You, you're going to, when you bring a problem to me, think about what you would like to see happen and how we may be able to achieve that. And all of that is that employee engagement piece mm-hmm. and that, that focus on the employee. So therefore, it's a piece of empowerment. You're giving that, the employee a voice and the important part of that is actually when they come to you with something, there is transparency around that. So if the solution works, you implement the solution, you give credit to the for, for whoever implemented it, and you ensure that it is well dispersed and integrated into everything else that you, you, you want to do. Now, the flip side of that is where you put the organization first. Yeah. And it's just like if you're home. I mean, if you if you're married and you have a husband, you have a partner and you think that they put in the house before you, it's not going to work, is it? As much as you would appreciate, yes, you know, their logistics and you need to take care of the home and stuff. Who are you taking care of the home for? It's for me. It's for me to enjoy it. It's for us to be happy. And it's the same sort of principles that I think. I think life is incredibly simple. It's maybe just me, Emma. <laughs> but I think we we complicated quite a bit with um, our own agendas and our own egos sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just keeping all of those things in, in check, especially when you're, when you're talking to, to the employees. And, you know, you mentioned love. I feel the love, you know, even just listening to you talk about the care and the, you know, the, the fact that you see and you hear and you, you, you make sure that your employees feel like they belong. And you're reminding me of a quote. You're reminding me of Maya Angelou where she says, um, people will forget what you said. They will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And maybe that people wouldn't think that belongs in compliance. But I think that sounds like it's the heart of compliance, back to the nucleus of if you can make people feel trusted, empowered, heard, seen, valued. Um, acknowledged and relevant let's say it's a lot of adjectives but if you can make people feel that in your job as a compliance officer half of your work is going to be done for you would you agree I would agree can I have people coming to me they come to me specifically because they know one I'm neutral I would be objective and I will add a different view and also sometimes they come to me sort of with feelings and not information so when they come to me with feelings, I give them information because I'm sitting in the epicenter of everything. I, I have information that they may not be aware of. Now, of course, you're not going to brief, um, breach confidence and all that stuff. But you could say, listen, you know, there's something else going on here that you may not be aware of. And they'd be like, oh, okay. So it's not just like, you know, people are not wanting to do stuff. It's a, no, it's a bigger part, you know, this funding has been uh, approved or things Things like that. So I think, um, yeah, it's it's really really important that we we get our we get our focus right. That's what I would say about compliance. That we get our focus right. Compliance is supposed to be your conscience. And as I was saying, I have people coming to me now. I I get invited to meetings that are not necessarily my job, but they know. Listen, Renny is going to add value here because she's probably she's cute, but she's fairly intelligent. <laughs> Added intelligence. Here we are again with AI. <laughs> but uh, um, you know, there is this this sort of open this open mind that you move with, and once you once you move with this open mind, you know things you see things differently. A closed mind is a hell of a thing to be working in, especially in compliance, because then sometimes we're doing 
things in an old way just because, you know, these legislation and stuff has been around for ages and things may have changed. So there has to be a, a, a modern, updated way to comply. So, uh. for instance, instead of doing things on paper, if I could do stuff on a piece of technology, then yes, you need to risk assess that, you know, where you have the information and if that goes down, single point of failure and all that stuff. But how quickly can I get people to comply through systems? Because I remember my own experience of doing fire risk assessment. <laughs> love walking around. Love it. But having to type that thing up, oh, my goodness. I would have to stay home my entire day and go through your notes. And you know, the longer you take to write it up, <laughs> the more difficult it takes because the longer it takes because you sometimes you forget what you've written or you can't read your handwriting because you're scribbling on stuff. Now, what do you have? You have systems that you're walking around with an iPad and you're ticking things off, you're taking photos, blah, blah, blah. You run a report, boom, easy. So then I think our role as compliance people in this organization demanding compliance is that we need to take away every single excuse from people that would that would... Um, cause them not to want to comply. Right, back Everything. to the point you made at the beginning. Too, yeah. too much friction is, again, just the conditions will not allow people to want to comply. Understood. And again, you're getting your information about what is real friction from your employees. You're asking about that. Mm. Yeah. Now, I, now, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Renee, but you, again, you're covering so many wonderful points. I love, I love the point you made earlier about how, how the, the business is fluid, it's agile, and then we need to be so too. And actually, you said something which might scare some compliance officers. You said, you might learn something in an audit which makes you want to go back and change your own policies and procedures. <laughs> now that's turning things on its head. Um, you know, we don't want to be, that takes some courage to go and say, actually, on reflection, maybe we're getting it wrong. Thank you for the information. Um, but I also think it, as you say, it sounds like continuous improvement. So talk to me about how you achieve continuous improvement of your policies and procedures, your audit, your approach to compliance, based on what you learn from the employees. Right. And that's exactly it. This whole auditing stuff is about um, making sure that we do what we say we're going to do, what we set out to do in our policies and procedures and whatever. Um, but also whatever we find, making sure that we, we loop back that back in to ensure that we um, improve our our operations, how whatever that is. And and that may go back to policies and procedures. It may go back to training. It may go back to us actually stopping to think about why are we actually doing this? What is our purpose? Purpose is very important. You know, you have people bolding out and not thinking, why am I doing this? What am I going to do? The minute I start thinking about something, my I am done at the end. I am doing this because I want to achieve X, Y, Z. So I know the end point before the start. Now, I think... Um, we just we 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 need to think about these things in a in a really really serious way. But I do think that compliance is something that is supposed to add value. And if we are not big enough and humble enough as an organization to think, okay, well, maybe we have gotten this wrong based on what we've seen in our on our audit, so or the breaches and the repeat the repeat occurrence, the themes as we call them. We know that something is wrong with our systems, our procedures. Now, human behavior, the easiest thing for organizations to do is to blame individuals for things going wrong. Human right. behavior, the human behavior. And so this is the excuse for, for AI. Yeah, we take, we remove the, the error. But there are some things that human beings could pick up on that AI, you know, that is not going to pick up on. So making sure as an organization that we are ready to create an environment where people would challenge compliance or challenge the documentation around compliance. Why I don't want a whole bunch of dummies. I might as well have AI in the in the robots running. I want you to tell me what are you experiencing and the nuances that would make me want to refine my policy, change my policy, ditch my policy. There's a lot of um, outward looking. You know, let's see, let's benchmark. Let's see what everybody else is doing. And I might sound a bit arrogant when I say that. I don't care what anybody else is doing. <laughs> I care about what we are doing because right. we have the ans we have the answers and the solutions inside because our experience is unique to us. 
Let's do that. And then maybe watch and see what's going on outside. I'm not looking on the outside to fix for, to, to, for the outside to tell me what I need to do inside. And it's the same thing like life coaching. All of the answers are, are in, in us. All, all we, our problems are in our minds. It might be things that are on the outside. But our solutions, our responses are within us. I will cause us to, to reflect inwards, that introspect. That you go inside, get the answers, and then if you need a bit of more guidance as to how you want to do the things you want to do, that's fine. But the answers is there inside. It's just really, I've been using a hashtag recently, leverage your strengths. You really need to leverage the strengths of those around us. Um, And it's funny, I said to you a moment ago, it takes courage just to admit you've made a mistake and change something. But actually... I'm going to rephrase that. I'm going to say you ought to be afraid of not (laughs) being able to admit your mistakes and leveraging the strengths of those around you. I think that's such a powerful thing to to recognize. Maybe put your ego aside, put your title and your position aside and recognize that your whole value add is leveraging the strengths of those in in the organization who will know the risks better than anyone. Exactly that. Exactly that. And this is where we continue to make the same mistakes. Because sometimes we're looking outside for the solutions. Sometimes, you know, um, you know, we don't want to use the people inside. It's like you find this a lot of the times. You, know, you have people who could actually do the job in an organization and you bring somebody else in and you pay much more money. And it creates hard feeling and all that stuff. But it's this thing of thinking that whatever is on the outside is, is better. You have people, develop people, use the information in the organization to make sure that you... You're doing the right thing. And and that is also part of the culture, you know, making people feel valued so that they would want to add to compliance and they want to contribute to compliance. Those things are important. You know, I I think, um, as I was saying, you know, that making the same mistake. If you are not honest with yourself, let's just say as an organization that the reason why we're getting these things wrong is because we actually doing some, our leadership is not right. Mm-hmm. Our procedures are not right. Our policies are not right. We're not planning things correctly. Or because a lot of organizations do you want to do more in less time with less people? It's called efficiency. Yeah? No, it's called stress. That's what it's called. Right. <clears throat> That's not efficiency. It's called stress. And so you create these kind of failure points, critical failures. And then you want to know what's, what's going on, you know. And also I was listening to um, T.D. Jakes, and this is a bishop that I listened to. And he was talking about, he had his leadership conference, and there was somebody he referred to, and he mentioned the fact that, you know, she said, we have to manage system. We, we, we need to manage systems and lead people and I thought that was brilliant and I think a lot of the times what we're trying to do in order to attain compliance is to micromanage people where we need whereas we need to lead people so they wouldn't manage those systems but we have to make sure we have the right systems in place we can go on and on Heather I know we could go on and on because you're making me think now as I said earlier in this podcast you know 80 percent of my job is making sure people feel trust but Actually, I think 80% of my job is making sure I trust people, <laughs> right? <laughs> that is actually training a little bit because you get you, you, as a compliance officer, you want people to come to you and trust you. But if you truly believe that they are not to be trusted as a, as a group, it's going to be hard to achieve that. And so it takes, again, a bit of a mind shift to say my, my best information and my best source of compliance and controls is in the people that I'm leading. And leadership, therefore, is to unlock that, right? To un- you said empower, unlock that strength and have people take ownership um, for their safety, the safety of others, and the safety of the communities in which they operate. And that's a lofty yeah. thing to, to ask, but I think, again, that's a, a vision worth getting behind, right? Well, yeah, and I think it's important. So, for instance, you know, um, the way I I do my, my audits, uh, you could call them um, a, a tier approach, you know, level, different levels of, of auditing and checks and, and balances. So the first thing I did was to create an, an audit schedule that would first allow people to check themselves, yeah, their managers to check that those checks are taking place, 
And then I would come and look at all of that. So the first thing that I'm doing is, okay, these, okay, you're supposed to have these meetings. You're supposed to be checking logbooks, blah, blah, blah. And all you need to do is to tick off that you've done that. So then I start holding you accountable that you said you've done that. So if I went to a tick box and then I went deeper into that and you didn't do it, now we have a problem. We have an issue with trust. But the first opportunity is for you to do what you're supposed to do and be honest about that. The next level of that is that your managers could actually see that you're doing that. And then I come and check over that. So it's this whole sort of layered approach. You are self-monitoring. You know, my grandmother used to say something to me when I was small. Um, we used to call her mother. Mother used to say, don't be an eye servant. Mm. And you know what that meant? Don't just do the right things or do things when your bosses are wrong or when people are watching you. And that's called culture. Now, that was embedded in me from a young age. You do what you're supposed to because you know you're supposed to do it. Mm. Not because somebody is coming to watch you or somebody, you know, you want to impress or anything like that. No, it's part of your, again, conscience. That is that moral compass that we're supposed to be moving with. And so you, you do it because you're supposed to do it. Well, it's funny you say that because I've been asking myself the reflective question and, and I've said it a few times at conferences too, is like, what are we selling? As compliance functions, what are we selling? And the answer that keeps coming to mind every time I ask that question of myself is I think we're selling peace of mind and ease. <laughs> so I use those words a lot. If you know me at all on LinkedIn, you see me use those words. And it's funny, as you say conscious, I think that's really what it boils down to, right? You get to sleep at night. You get to know you did everything you could to do the right thing. Um, not because the compliance officer told you to, not because you checked a box on a code of conduct training, but just because it is the right thing to do. Um, and that you're looking again, looking out for yourself, looking out for those around you, making sure that it's a safe place to work, making sure the company survives another day. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like that idea of conscience. I, you know, again, we go back to what what motivates people to want to be compliant. And so, tell me a bit more about how you've used motivation in your compliance leadership. My motivation is, I don't want to have to work too hard. <laughs> no, seriously, Hammer, because you know there was an incident at work, and I had to do an, an investigation. And the amount of time that took is such a waste. Now, everything that had happened was foreseeable. Yeah. So it's almost like an irritation when you have to do an investigation because things weren't being done and, you know, people weren't complying. But I know the reason for that. And I knew it long ago and nothing was done about it, mm-hmm. which is resources. Yeah. So we, 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 in terms of motivation, the motivation is that making sure people have what they need. That's the motivation. So when you complain about something and you say, you know, you don't have the time to do this. Okay, well, what can we do to make the time so that you're able to do this? The motivation is that we are doing the right things because that's what we are supposed to do. But it's about taking care of each other. That's all it has been. And I go back, as I said, I go back to my first principles in health and safety. You know the, you know the term, Hammer. Um, so far as it's reasonably practicable, have you done everything that's reasonably practicable based on the resources and the time and blah, blah, blah? So that's a, the, the, the moral question. That's a conscience. That's a question. Have At the end of the day, have I done all that I could have done? Have I escalated? Have I put enough resources and time into, into these things, into this area of compliance so that people could actually do it? Have I done? And that's a question we have to ask ourselves at the end of our lives. You know, I was standing in my, in my, in my dad's funeral, and I, this is what I was thinking. Have I done everything that was reasonably practicable to spend time with my dad? And I had, so I had no regrets. We have to operate in a, in a way where... We have no regrets. If something happens, we know we could honestly stand in a court of law. We could face somebody's um, parent, somebody's child, and said, look, we did everything that we could have. We We went beyond, and this has happened. Now, really and truly, when you go beyond, things don't happen 
bad things don't happen just like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to be able to ask this question. So when I ask myself, you know, had I done everything that was reasonably practicable, I knew the answer way before because being away in, in London, my thing was as long as my parents are alive, I am going to go to Trinidad every single Christmas and in July if I can, as long as the money of, uh, would allow it. So, there are lots of places I could go, but my time and resources is dedicated to my parents. And I did that. And growing up, I helped. I did whatever I could do financially. I had no guilt on my conscience. We have to do what we know we can. And it has to be an honest assessment. It can't be that, yeah, well, you know, we'll just do this because um, we we feel that's what we need to do, but really and truly the organization can afford to do more and you're not doing more to prevent that risk. Mm-hmm. And this is where the court comes in and say, actually, based on your turnover, based on X, Y, Z, you could have done more. Don't wait for somebody to ask you, what more could you have done? Ask yourself that question. And that is the motivation I, I use when I'm talking to people. Well, we have this problem. Okay, what have you done? Well, you know, I've been talking about it. Have you spoken to your boss about it? No. Did your boss speak to anybody else about it? No. Okay. So I've, I've said this to managers and associate directors when, when there's an issue that requires resources, but we just don't have the money for it. I said, listen, that is not your decision to make. Your job is to escalate that to the highest point, the design, the deciding minds, the ones who are actually carrying the risk, the ones that you are managing the risk on behalf of, and say, this is a problem. We need resources. Let them say that they, they can't afford it. But you don't make that decision for them. That's not your role. Your role is to do everything that is reasonably practicable, which is to try and manage it. If it's not working, keep going up, 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 up until the highest levels know what what the issues are then so even in doing that you talk about motivation this is actually saying to them listen don't sit on this problem and think it can't be solved let's try and take this as far up as possible it's motivation to know that people think that you're not just going to become complacent or cynical because a lot of the times things are not working out in organizations people have been complaining for quite a, la- a while and nothing is taking place so they stop Oh, yeah, we've been asking that for that for ages and nobody is paying no attention. Nobody's interested. I'd be like, no, 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 no. So you're saying this to me now? This is not going to die. Right, right. And it's, it's so much there. You're talking about giving an informed choice. You know, in, if you don't speak up, you're not giving an informed choice, number one. Um, but number two, you touched on something, which, again, we could take another hour talking just about this topic, is, is the ability to speak up and the excuses people have for not speaking up. And I use the word excuses. I'm not using that to be disrespectful. Some of them feel very real. People feel fear. They feel resigned. They feel tired. They're worried about retaliation or futility if they speak up. So let me just ask you on that. You know, we talked about creating the conditions where bad things won't happen. I think one of those conditions is that you feel comfortable speaking up. Um, And that's agnostic to resources. Because I think that's a culture thing as opposed to a money thing. So what is your advice for a company that's trying to encourage a culture of speak up? Create the environment for that. I mean, create the, create the opportunities for people to speak up. But more than that, when they do, do something about it. Or if you choose not to do something about what they're talking about and, you know, find another solution or something. Have a conversation around it and be very transparent about your decision making and feedback to people. This right. is, it's not just about money, is it? I think I think you're you know what you're hitting on is the conversation doesn't have to be linear as to we need more money to buy this tool to do this thing. Um, sometimes you can, as you said, problem solve, right? With the resources you've got and you figure out like in, in your example, you said you went home twice a year. That's what you were able to do, right? You found a way. I'm sure you spent a lot of time on the telephone as well, right? You found another way to make sure you had that connection. So what's the parallel in the in the workplace when it comes to problem solving, even when resources are tight? Prioritization. Hmm. You know, as I said, you do whatever is important to you. People find a way to do the things that are important to them. If that means on a personal level, taking a loan or, you know, you're putting it on your credit card because the bigger thing here is time is that money. 
you know, I knew my parents are getting older. For me, money is not an issue. As long as, as long as you're, um, you're alive, you could work and you create, you could create, you could create wealth. I decided to have another, another business to be able to do stuff like that. So you create, you create ways and you create the avenue. So an organization saying they don't have money, it's not necessarily always about money. It's the will that they don't have. It's the will that they don't have. And I think is is being honest, uh, honest about that. And and sometimes this is what frustrates employees too. Just they think that organizations are spending money on other things that don't seem to be important. And the main things for compliance where people are struggling, they just keep ignoring yeah I think like you said transparency and communication where possible is key there right because decisions do have to be made but as long as we've given an informed choice and we feel comfortable going back I I say to my my team be noisy just because you don't get what you think is important the first time doesn't mean you're wrong (laughs) right doesn't mean that you you shouldn't ask again and ask in a different way because sometimes um the priorities don't seem to align but it doesn't mean the point you're making is not important so mm-hmm. no I love that well Renee look we we could go on and on and on. I want to I want to give you just an opportunity to to share any last bits of wisdom with the audience about compliance leadership um so over to you last few words I I am big on on love I think once people um, feel loved and cared for in environments they tend to do the right things I have people who would go the extra mile just because just because it's me just because and just creating that environment throughout the organization I think we 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 are afraid to kind of talk about love in the in, in the workplace you know it's, it's almost like uh, you know we come here to be professional what is professional your profession is to take care of people mm-hmm. And where does that come from? It has to come from a deep-seated caring that's in your heart so that you move with the right intentions. And for me, that's where my compliance comes from. My compliance comes from a very happy place of love. And so when I speak about compliance, I don't even use legal terms. I don't have to. I don't have to use my title. I don't have to do any of that to get people to do what they, what they need to do because they know I care. And that is enough. And what an impact you're having, Renee. So thank you so much for caring and for inspiring me and others, I'm sure. I'm sure our audience is being very inspired to care as well, because that really is the root of everything we're doing. Um, With that, I'm so sad to end this podcast, but I'm so grateful to you for joining us. Thank you to the audience for listening. Thank you to Lisa Fine for inviting me to do this great adventure with Great Women in Compliance. And thanks again to Corporate Compliance Insights for sponsoring the program. And we'll see you at the next one. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Emma. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.